this series in my own heart is causing this sense of holy anticipation. As we have the opportunity as a church to encounter the greatness of who God is. Several months ago, the pastoral team was spending time talking about the state of our world and our culture. And we were burdened by what's happening all around us. And we were also really challenged with how can we help our people? How can we help equip the church to live their faith and to live it out loud and boldly? And so this series that we're beginning today came out of that sense of kind of discontent and a desire for God to do his work and his way for his glory in a fresh way. Yesterday afternoon, as I was preparing to preach for our Saturday night service, the Lord took me to Isaiah chapter 48. The former things I declared of old that when they went out from my mouth and I announced them, then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. That gripped me because for some of us, we've heard old truth for many years. And yet here it says, I suddenly came to pass. I'm praying that in this series, that today, right now, God's old truths would hit us in a fresh way, suddenly, right now, in your life. I kept reading. From this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. And then I started praying, God, Do something now. Do something new. God, shake us and do your work in us. And well, I kept reading verse 11. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God, it's our desire today to give you glory because you deserve it, to see you as weighty and big and majestic. And Lord, we pray that you would take the truth that many of us have known for many years and perhaps it's become old to us. Lord, would you do your work by your spirit that it would suddenly in the here and now become fresh to us. Lord, we also ask that you would reveal new things to us from your word, things that we haven't seen before, things we've seen, things we see in our own life, perhaps sin that's been lurking in our own hearts or compromise. Lord, do your work now. And Lord, we ask this all for your glory because it is all about you, for we know you will not share your glory with another. Lord, we pray all of this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Hey, how many of you wear glasses or contacts? Go ahead and raise your hands. Yeah, you can tell I do. Actually, we all use lenses to view the world around us. Let me illustrate. So for some of us, we approach the world through the lens of politics. And so we put red glasses on and we see everything through that lens. 
And for others of us, well, we put blue glasses on. And that's how we view our world. And for others of us, we see the world through glasses like this. These would be Green Bay Packer glasses. <laughs> and others with blue glasses for the bears. It's interesting. Uh, we have a block party twice a year in our neighborhood. It's been a wonderful way to get to know our neighbors. And several months ago, we planned a block party for this afternoon at 4 o'clock. And this last week, I said to Beth, I said, Beth, we have a problem. Because the Packers and the Bears play. I'm the only Packers fan in our neighborhood. And I knew these Bears fans wouldn't come to the block party if the game was on. And so I I met with one of my neighbors and I said, we have a problem. How can we solve it? We have it solved. We have a TV and an antenna. So we're moving forward. (laughs) For some of us in our culture today, we put on gender glasses And for some, gender has become fluid and glasses are taken off and put back on today. Some today see their world through rose-colored glasses and then for others, well, we see the world through dark glasses. We're pessimistic and, and down on things and even down on people and And there's people today trying on like all sorts of glasses, like I'm going to see the world this way and maybe this will satisfy and maybe that will meet my needs. And oh, here's a new thing and here's something my friend's into. And and so we we exchange glasses, we view things in different ways. Well, at its most basic level, a worldview is the lens through which we see through which we define, and through which we make judgments about the world around us. It's the framework from which we view reality and make sense of reality. Jeff Myers, who's president of Summit Ministries, defines worldview like this, quote, a pattern of ideas, beliefs, convictions, and habits that help us make sense of God, the world, and our relationship to God and the world. Well, for some of us, we hear a definition and we immediately forget it. So let me illustrate. Imagine a two-year-old A two-year-old believes he or she is the center of their world. A secular humanist? Well, he or she believes that the material world is all that exists. Well, let's go to the realm of world religions. Let me just pick one. A Buddhist believes he can be liberated from suffering by self-purification. Last week, Beth and I were out in Virginia visiting our four grandchildren, and one morning I was out for a run, and I was running in this neighborhood, and I noticed a sign in the yard as I was running, and so I kind of glanced at it, kept running, and then turned around and went back and read the sign a little more carefully and took a picture of it. Because this sign represents the worldview of the people who live there. This is what the sign says. We believe science is real. Women's rights are human rights. Black lives matter. No person is illegal. Love is love. Diversity makes us stronger. And it hit me. For these homeowners, 
They're saying, this is what we believe. This is how we see the world. But for many people that you and I interact with, we're not sure what glasses they have on. Now, before we go much further, we're in a, kicking off a new series, and here's why. Because seismic shifts have hit our society. Years ago, change was like this. We were going south as a culture, as a society. Everyone could sense it. But now, this has happened. Boom. We've gone like straight down, like off the cliff. That which has always been good is now declared evil. That which is evil is now declared good. And as a result, people are shaken. They're unmoored from truth. Believers even unsettled in their faith. And some have gone off the cliff with others. King David asked a question in Psalm 11, verse 3. It resonates with many of us today. Perhaps you've asked it. If the foundations are destroyed, what in the world can the righteous do? How do we respond when everything is imploding and exploding around us? This verse can also be translated like this. If the foundations are destroyed, then what have the righteous done? In other words, what have we done to contribute to that? Well, in our present cultural environment, it is imperative, church, for us to be convictional. It's time. It's time for us to be courageous and stand up for what is true and to make sure we're compassionate. Because we don't want to just be angry. We don't want to just fight with people or argue with people. No, we want to be compassionate. And so we can communicate the gospel to those who need to hear it. In short, we want to know what we believe, why we believe it, and how we can communicate it to others. We want to be unshaken in our faith. That's Psalm 62 two, And unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's Romans 1.16. So grounded in truth lived out in God's grace, our faith in Christ will change our lives and ultimately help transform the Quad Cities. Like, I really believe that. See, if all of us are transformed in our context of relationships, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our campuses, God can do an amazing, mighty work here in our own community. Here's the topics we're going to be addressing today, why worldview matters, and then the real reality, who Jesus is, the timelessness of truth, your identity is essential. That is a huge topic today, identity. Being salt and light in society, and then our last message, putting it all into practice. Here's our main point for today. What you believe about God's word will determine how you view the world around you. If your worldview does not come from God's word, listen, get this, mark this, it will by default come from the world. Now, sadly, according to George Barna, the percentage of those with a biblical worldview has been declining in each successive generation. If you can look at this without tears forming in your eyes, without this not being like a gut punch, you need to ask God, well, let me just point this out. 10% of boomers 
have a biblical worldview. The next generation, Gen Z, Gen X, 7%. Millennials, 6%. Look at the youngest generation, 4%. That should rock us. That should bother us deeply. It should trouble us. George Barna, who does surveys all the time, he's always releasing studies. He was asked to summarize these findings. He gave a one-word answer, frightening. These results generated a lot of stories in the media. The Christian Post ran an article with this headline, quote, Biblical worldview much closer to extinction. The news continues to get worse. According to the American worldview inventory that came out this summer, it's how fresh it is, like June, two months ago. Listen to these alarming trends. The share of the population, so if you put all the generations together that claims to hold a biblical worldview, fell from 6% to 4% in the last three years. And look at this next one. The share of born-again believers who say they are deeply committed to practicing their faith has fallen from 85% to 50%. Friends, settle this. What you believe about God's word will determine how you view the world around you. And if your worldview does not come from God's world, it will, by default, come from the world. Now, perhaps this diagram will help explain the importance of worldview. Simply put, our worldview, our view of the world affects our reality. It affects what we believe. It affects our values and it affects how we behave. Now, all of this is so important because our view of the world helps us make sense of life's biggest questions. Let me just choose five. Origin. Where do I come from? Identity. Like, who am I? Meaning. Why am I here? What is my purpose in life? Morality. How should I live? And finally, destiny, what happens when I die? Now, to take this topic of worldview, which for some of us, we're having a hard time kind of grabbing, what does that really mean? Let me flesh it out into eight popular worldviews today. And as I go through these, bring to mind people you know who hold these views. And if you're courageous... Ask yourself if any of these views have come into your life. Pragmatism. I want whatever works for me. If it works, I'm in. Individualism. My interests are the center of reality. Three, consumerism. Uh, My worth is tied to what I own, to what I drive to where I live, naturalism. Since this world is all there is, I can live like I want. 
Moral relativism. My truth is more important than absolute truth if there even is absolute truth. Oh, here's a big one. Hedonism. My goal is to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. Yeah, that's what I'm after. I want to buzz. I want fun. I want to be happy. And if there's anything painful, I'm avoiding that. And if a substance will help me get there and avoid this, then so be it. If there's an experience out there that's going to be a blast, I'm all about it. Or how about this? Nihilism. My life has no meaning. I just do what I want. And this last one is a phrase made popular about 10 years ago, moralistic, therapeutic deism. Let me start with deism. At its core, it's the belief that there is a God or there might be a God, but if there is, he's not involved in my life. He's out there somewhere, but he wants my problems to be solved and he wants me to be good. Yeah, he wants me to be nice to others. Well, I'm afraid that one has infiltrated the evangelical church in general. As we've gone through these, perhaps you've been thinking of those around you, and perhaps you yourself have allowed some of these to creep in. Apologist Frank Turek describes our challenge today. Uh, Most people today are not on a truth quest. So when the Lord saved me by his grace for his glory, it was in a college environment, University of Wisconsin at Madison. There was a lot of different views there. And at the time, as a new Christian, I got a lot of exposure to apologetics, which is how do you defend our faith? What are the reasons for what we believe Like Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Josh McDowell came out with a second book, More Evidence That Demands a Verdict. I loved it. I ate it up. And it's so important. But listen to what Frank Turek says about people today. Most people are not on a truth quest. They don't care. What are they looking for? Happiness. They're on a happiness quest. Whatever is going to make them happy, they're going to believe. Let me draw our attention to one of the discussion questions in uh, for our growth groups that I'll be wrestling with this week. This is question number eight. By the way, we're out of the printed copies, uh, but there might be some more in the kiosk for the discussion questions for today. We'll have more of these. These also will be on our app and our website as PDF uh, versions. So question eight. Someone has said Christians suffer from multiple worldview disorder. Give some examples of how believers mix and match their beliefs, even if they are contradictory. Our preaching passage today is going to challenge us. Here's the challenge to view everything through the lens of God's word in order to be transformed. Because if we're not intentional about that, we will end up becoming conformed to the world. I'm going to invite you to stand if you're able. And I'm going to take us to Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. Before we read this passage, let me just say 
Two things. First is, some of you, when you heard what the passage is, you're like, I got that one down, nailed that one some time ago, heard a bunch of sermons on this passage, and you may think, I already know it, got it. Don't do that. (laughs) Secondly, in order to fully understand this, we need to go back at least one verse. We could go back many more, but let me take us back to how chapter 11 ends. For from him and through him, And to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. All right, now let's read. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You can be seated. I see seven ways in this passage for you and I to develop a biblical worldview. Here's the first place to start. Respond to God's urgent appeal. Now, based on the doxology found at the end of chapter 11, Paul says this phrase, I appeal to you. He could have put this in a command. He could have said, I command you. He doesn't say that. He makes an appeal. That means to call near, to invite, to beseech, to persuade someone to do something that they have not yet done. The Amplified Bible renders it like this. I beg of you. So there's a challenge here. A a challenge for a decision of our wills. Number two, allow your behaviors to flow from your beliefs. The next phrase, therefore, brothers. Whenever we see the word therefore, we should ask, what is it therefore? Here's what Paul is doing. He's building on his argument through the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. He does the same thing in Ephesians. He has all this rich doctrine. And then the transition is to to how do we live this out in our life? You see that also in the book of Colossians. So he's moving from creed to conduct from principles to practice, from exposition to exhortation, from belief to behavior, from doctrine to duty. Don't forget the first two letters of the word doctrine spell do, D-O, we're called to do. Theology is never meant to be cold and lifeless. It must have a practical application. He's saying something like this. Based on your position in Christ, this is what you now need to put into practice. Or to say it another way, what you believe about the Bible determines your beliefs and your behavior. Notice he refers to his readers as brothers. That's such a tender word. In the Greek, it means from the same womb. We share a womb. Those of us who are born again, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul is appealing to believers, not unbelievers here, but to believers to do something they've not yet done. Number three, be motivated by God's mercy. 
The plea mercies. The plea is based on the mercies of God. Would you observe this is in the plural? It refers to God's multitude of mercies. In 2 Corinthians 1.3, God is referred to as the father of mercies. He's not merciful just once, but again and again. Aren't you glad about that? He is consistently and constantly full of mercy. In fact, the word mercy is used five times in Romans chapter 9. In chapter 11, verses 30 and 32, you see it four times. But now have received mercy by the mercy shown to you. They also may now receive mercy that he may have mercy on all. John Calvin said, we will never worship with a sincere heart or serve God with unbridled zeal until we properly understand how much we are indebted to God's mercy. God has demonstrated so much mercy to us that we can't help but respond by surrendering our lives fully to him. Isaac Watts captured it so well. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Now, many of us think we have to do penance or perform to get God's mercy. (laughs) We have it all backwards. God gives a multitude of mercies apart from anything we do, but this should cause us to surrender everything we are and sacrifice everything we have. One pastor says it like this. Indeed, the extent to which we do not offer ourselves to God reflects the extent to which we do not understand the depth and significance of God's mercy. Most of us know we've been forgiven, but many of us overestimate our goodness. Ouch is right, and we underestimate the amount of mercy that we've received. It's interesting, Paul doesn't say in light of God's grace, he focuses on God's mercy. Why is that? God's grace is demonstrated when we get what we don't deserve, whereas mercy keeps us from getting what we do deserve. If I received what I deserve, I'd end up in hell. Every one of us, don't you think you're a pretty good person because the Bible says you're not. We're all sinners, and the wage of sin is death. You do nothing. You just try to live a regular life, even a good life. You will end up in hell. That's what the Bible teaches. So apart from the mercy of God, that's where we are headed. One of the lines from a song that we sing often here, my sins, they are many. His mercies are more. So, in view of God's multiple, multiplied, and multifaceted mercies, we must voluntarily and enthusiastically respond by submissively offering our lives to him. Because what you believe about God's word will determine how you view the world around you. And if your worldview does not come from God's word, if you're just trying different glasses on, if you're just living for yourself, if you're not getting your worldview from God's word, it will come from the world. Number four, offer your body on God's altar. Paul urges believers to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That word present, that's a technical term. It takes us back to the Old Testament. 
It was used to describe the giving, the offering of an animal for sacrifice on an altar. It means to offer once and for all. It means to relinquish one's grip. So in the Old Testament, a live animal was brought to the priest. The owner would lay hands on the beast to symbolically say, this animal is taking my place. That animal was then slaughtered. The blood was sprinkled upon the altar and in some cases upon the people and the sacrifice was burned completely. A significant feature of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, according to Leviticus 6.12, is this. The fire upon the altar was kept constantly burning and never allowed to die out. So every morning, the officiating priest would take fresh wood and lay it on the fire of the altar before he presented the burnt offering to God. He laid wood on the altar to present the offering to God. Hold on to that thought. We'll come back to it. This idea of a living sacrifice must have been a novel idea for the Jews of that day. This was something they had not heard of before, except perhaps when Abraham offered Isaac on the altar, and Isaac was then a living sacrifice. See, they were used to offering an animal to be killed, and once a sacrifice was offered to God, you couldn't take it back. Oh, so watch this. When we're called to present our bodies to the Lord... We're exhorted to offer our total being to him, not just bits and pieces. 1 Corinthians 6.20, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. The word body refers to the totality of our entire being, our entire life, all of our activities. David Gusick writes, the thinking of our age says that our body must tell the will what to do. The Bible says that our will must bring the body as a living sacrifice to God. Let me just pause there to say for some of us, our body runs our life. Our desire, our feelings, our lust, whatever we want, we just follow it. And he ends by saying this, the body is a wonderful servant, but it's a terrible master. A pig and a chicken were walking down the road together and they came upon a sign advertising a breakfast fundraiser. The chicken said to the pig, we should donate to that worthy cause. How about if I give an egg and you provide the ham? (laughs) To which the pig replied, not so fast, buddy. For you, that's just a contribution. For me, that's total commitment. And let me just apply it. For some of us, we just give little contributions to God. Throw a couple bucks in the offering box. Hear a need for servants and, okay, I'll do it one time as long as it's short and I don't miss the other stuff I want to do. Most of us kind of live our Christian life like that. We make contributions here or there. When God is calling us for total Commitment. You see, he doesn't want just to be part of our lives, our weekend lives, our Sunday morning lives, or Saturday night lives. He wants us to be completely committed to him. He's not interested in beasts today. He's looking for bodies of believers right here in this room or engaging online who will be sold out 
to him. The problem, as someone has said, is that with living sacrifices, they keep crawling off the altar. (laughs) Paul continues by saying, the offering of our life is to be holy and acceptable to God. Sacrifices were to be without blemish or defect. People were to bring their firstborn, the best, not the leftovers. And when we do, it will be pleasing or agreeable to him. Leviticus 1.9, the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And so the idea of a sweet aroma to the Lord is almost always linked to the idea of an offering made by fire. This offering is our spiritual worship. The word spiritual can be translated as reasonable. The word worship is sometimes rendered as service. So... Worship is not just something we do. It's certainly not just something we watch. No. True worship is the presenting of our bodies as living sacrifices to him. As we serve him every day of the week. Well, let me add. We should never say something like this on our way home. I didn't get anything out of worship today. Here's why. Because true worship is not about getting. It's about giving. It's about giving myself to God as a living sacrifice. Number five, resist conformity to the world. So verse one calls for this decisive commitment to fully surrender. Verse two tells us how we can maintain that commitment by renewing our mind and not following the fashion and pattern of the world. Do not be conformed to this world. The tense of this verse indicates we need to stop conforming, meaning that's our default. That's what we will do. We will conform, or better, some of us are conforming or have conformed to the world right now. That word conformed is where we get scheme from. Sometimes translated as fashion, Paul is urging us to stop being pushed into the fashion of the world. Now, the world refers to the world system or popular culture which is in rebellion to God. Think of all the ways we're bombarded with unbiblical worldviews. I'll list some, you can think of others, but entertainment, celebrities. Today there's influencers, music, social media, the internet, News, politics, education, all of them in different ways can lead to seductively drawing us in. And sometimes we are so conformed to the world, we don't even know it. On top of that, there's little or no noticeable difference between how a Christian lives and how a non-Christian lives. And so a conformist is afraid to be different and feels a need to be like everyone else. A Christian is not supposed to be a chameleon. Exodus 23.2, you shall not fall in with the many to do evil. Titus 2.12, renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. 1 Peter 1.4, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. 
James 4.4 states it bluntly. Friendship with the world is enmity or hatred to God. Some of you right now are facing incredible temptations. I don't mean to just look over at our students. But can you imagine those of us who are older, how hard it is today? Can you imagine the temptations they are faced with in their classes, from their friends, from social media? The temptation to cave on their faith, to give in to impurity, to, to get inculcated by all that is swimming around them. And students, we're with you. Press on and stay strong. And some of us, even though we're not younger, we're dealing with it as well. There could be temptations happening right now in your life. They're in your mind. They're in your heart. It might be lust. It might be a thought that you're wanting to do something else. You might be far away in your mind right now. Some of us have internalized the world's values and fashion so much. We don't even recognize it anymore. We've all heard the modern day parable of the frog in the kettle. If you drop a frog into a pot of boiling water, it will immediately jump out, alert to the danger. However, if you drop that same frog into a pot of warm water and slowly turn up the heat, it will comfortably soak in the pot until it eventually boils to death. When conditions change gradually, the frog is deceived by the slow incremental rise in temperature. And like the frog, all of us are susceptible to the dulling of our senses. That which used to bother us and triggered our conscience no longer does. We're dulled by it. We're deceived. Now, it's easy to blame the decadence in our culture. And certainly there's a lot going on. But one author suggests the water in which the frog is cooking is our own spiritual apathy, our missional indifference, our prayerless irrelevance. In essence, the frog stands in danger of boiling in its own water. And just as Jesus warned some of the churches in Revelation about their precarious spiritual condition, so too we must recognize, this author writes, our own need to take responsibility for the situation. Friends, what you believe about God's word will determine how you view, how you look at the world around you. And if your worldview does not come from God's word, it will come from the world. Number six, receive transformation from the word The negative command calls us not to be conformed to the world. The positive command is be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That refers to an inner change. I like how J.B. Phillips translates Romans 12 too. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold, but let God remold your minds from within. The verb tense indicates we're to keep on being transformed. We can't say, okay, I'm transformed today. I'm good to go. I'm just going to coast. It doesn't work that way. 
We get the word metamorphosis from this Greek word. A metamorphosis is not something we can do on our own. It refers to a deep inner change, a total change from the inside out. At its core, it involves a change in form, like when Jesus was transfigured, Matthew 17, 2, and he was transfigured before them, them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Let me say it as clearly as I can. If you are not intentionally being transformed by God's word, you will be conformed to the world. Not might be, not maybe, you will be. Well, you ask, well, how does this transformation take place? Well, that's the walk of discipleship, the walk of obedience. But let me suggest the first place to start is to regularly gaze on God and his greatness and his glory. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, we read this, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being, okay, listen for the word. It's the same word used in Romans 12.2, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. For some of us, we have God really small in our lives. We need to see God as great and glorious, mighty and majestic, holy and honorable. We need to worship God for who he is. I can't wait for the Faith and Reason seminar on Saturday morning with Rick, and I attended the first part of that seminar several weeks ago. Uh, There was a conference here in the Quad Cities. I only caught the first hour. But Rick went through, I think he called it seven systems within the human body. And he was describing the circulatory system. And then the intricacies of the human eye. He was pointing to God as the creator and designer. And then he took us heavenward. We considered the galaxies and all the planets. And then he took us to human DNA. And I got goosebumps. And I worshiped right there. And then I had a second thought. I can't wait to witness See, when we see God for who he is, it causes us to worship. It transforms us, and then we want to tell others about him. Number seven, adjust your will to God's will. Notice the last part of verse two, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Some of us want to know, God, what's your will for for my life, but we've never sacrificed our bodies to him. We're not living for him, but we want to know his will. But when we wonder what God's will is for our life, the first place to start is right here by living out Romans 12, 1 and 2. Let me say it like this. Until you offer him your body, your mind, and your will, you will not understand his good, pleasing, and perfect will, and you won't have a godly worldview. A biblical worldview is a view of the world which seeks to answer life's biggest questions from the Bible. Brett McCracken put together a list of some ways a Christian worldview is totally countercultural. Uh, let me go through part of this list. 
In a believe-in-yourself world, Christianity calls you to deny yourself and take up your cross. In a you-do-you world, which emphasizes expressive individualism, authenticity, and nonconformity, Christianity is about conforming to the likeness of Jesus and being imitators of God. In a consumerist and greedy culture, Christianity calls you to costly generosity and a willingness to give up material possessions. In a self-oriented world of self-promotion, self-help, and selfies, Christianity calls you to be others-focused in your service to them. In a world which says you should be free to do with your body whatever you wish, the Bible says to glorify God with your body. And in a sexually progressive culture which sanctions pretty much anything, Christianity says sex is intended for the union of one man and one woman within the context of the covenant of marriage. In a world which has normalized the discarding of unborn lives and the dehumanizing of people, Christianity insists that all humans bear the image of God and are therefore worthy of dignity and protection. Several hundred of us participated in the Walk for Life yesterday. It was down at the Ben Butterworth Parkway right next to the Mississippi River. And one of the guys who walked is Corey McAnally. Many of you know Corey. Corey has Down syndrome. Uh, He attends on Saturday night with his mom, uh, Ruth. Corey raised $3,300 for the walk for life. As far as I know, the top person in that. Uh, some of you know, many of you know Claire uh, and Todd Mortensen. Uh, Claire was just burdened, like, what can I do to support the walk for life? And so she had a garage sale, like a yard sale, and collected a lot of items. She raised $750 for pregnancy resources through that. Now, I tell you those examples. What motivates those people to do that? I'll tell you what it is. It's a Christian worldview. See, it's not enough just to say this is what I believe. It must affect how we behave, how we live, what we do, what we don't do. McCracken ends by saying this, in a pluralistic world with a diversity of beliefs in which all roads lead to heaven, Christianity calls you to believe there is only one path to heaven, and that's trusting in Jesus Christ alone. That list could be much longer. So when I came to Christ in college, I met somebody named Tom. Tom had come to Christ in high school. He was at University of Wisconsin. He now has kids. His 20-something daughter posted these words. I have her permission to share. Remember, she's 20-something. Quote, the older I get, the greater desire I have to do things God's way. The things in this world seem to get more depraved and disheartening every day. Why would I want that? The importance of what I fill my mind with has been weighing on me recently. What you consume will consume you for better or for worse. That's a 20-something. In our growth group on Wednesday night, Rick Waddell said it succinctly. 
if you just skim on the surface, so if you're a Christ follower and you're really not reading your Bible, you're not praying, your attendance on weekends is spotty, you're just kind of skimming along. He said this, if you just skim on the surface, you will default to a worldly worldview. It's only when you go deep that you discover a biblical worldview. Friends, the Bible gives us all the answers we need. Where do we come from? We are created by God. Who are we? God made us in his image as male or female. What is our purpose? God created us to know and follow him as we fill the earth and reign over it as responsible stewards for his glory. What is our core problem? We are sinners who fall short of God's glory because we pridefully resist his authority. How is this problem solved? Jesus died as the final sacrifice for sin. He rose from the dead on the third day. When we turn from our self-centered ways and trust and give our allegiance to Jesus, the Messiah as our Savior, Lord, and King, we will be saved. How should we live we should live according to the way Jesus the way of Jesus the Messiah which can be summarized by Jesus himself love God with all you have and love people what happens when we die well if you're born again you will go to be with the Lord forever in heaven or you will live apart from him in hell for eternity General William Booth the founder of the Salvation Army was once asked to reveal the secret of his success He didn't really even like the question because he didn't really find himself all that successful. So he hesitated. Tears came to his eyes and he gave this answer, quote, okay, I will tell you the secret. God has had all there was of me. There have been men with greater brains than I have, men with greater opportunities, But from the day that I got the poor of London on my heart and I caught a vision of what Jesus could do with them, I made up my mind that God should have all of William Booth. Does Jesus have all of you? No, like really, like all. You see, he is Lord which means everything is under his lordship. Everything we have, everything we are belongs to him. If you ever given, you're all completely to him. I love what Andrew Murray said in this regard. God is ready to assume full responsibility for the life wholly yielded to him. God is ready. Are you? We need to crawl up on the altar if we will and offer our bodies as living sacrifice because Jesus went up on the cross as final sacrifice for us. A young boy came to church one cold winter day. It was blowing snow and he wanted to get out from the elements and come inside. He had been trying to sell newspapers. Remember those? (laughs) But he wasn't able to sell a single newspaper because of the weather. So as he slipped into the back of the church, he was just hoping to get warm and catch up on his sleep. And though the Sunday crowd was slim, the boy paid attention to the sermon and he was greatly moved by it. When the pastor was done, he called for the offering. The ushers went from row to row and when the offering plate came to the boy, 
he just stared at it for a while. People started getting nervous because like, what's this little boy going to do? He stared at it and then he put it on the floor and he did something very strange and very beautiful. He stood up and he stepped in the offering plate. By then, all the people had turned around and were staring at the boy. And when he looked up, he had big tears streaming down his face. And he said, Pastor, I don't have any money because I haven't sold any newspapers today. But if Jesus gave his life for me, I will gladly give my life to him. The person who has nothing to give but himself is able to give the greatest gift of all. We want to close today by giving an altar call. I'm going to call it God's altar call. That's really what Romans 12, 1 and 2 is all about. It's a personal time for us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God. Verse 1 literally reads like this. You, plural, all of you, everyone, present yourselves to God. And so... This is what God wants from each of us. And we won't develop a biblical worldview until we offer our bodies as an act of worship. God doesn't want us to lie on the altar as a dead sacrifice, but rather to live out our lives selflessly for him as living sacrifices. For some of you, today's the day you're going to stop running from God. And you're going to repent of your sins. And you're going to trust in Jesus as your Savior. And you're going to determine by his grace to live under his lordship. Today could be your day of salvation. For others of you who've just been skimming along, just coasting in your Christianity, today could be the day that you fully surrender to him. That you rededicate yourself to him and to his purposes. I'm going to ask Nicole to come up and we're going to end by singing the song, I Surrender All. And before we do that, though, I I want to pray and then I'll give some more instructions. God, we thank you for, we just thank you for the clarity of your word. And Lord, I pray in these moments right here that decisions of the will would be made, that people would respond to your gracious mercy, your mercies. And Lord, that some would come to saving faith for the first time. And Lord, that many others would surrender themselves to you. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.